Hi, my name is Aisha Small. Thanks for downloading this episode of the Youth in Education podcast, where I interview interesting guests to explore developments in education, research and policy that affect young people, primarily in the UK. This podcast is brought to you by the Youth Think and Action Tank, LKM Co. Hi everybody, welcome to episode 11 of the LKM Co Youth and Education podcast. I'm talking to my colleague, Dr. Sam Bars, and we're discussing white working class boys in this episode. Sam's our director of research, and we talk about how universities can become more accessible for white working class boys. We also talk a lot about class and why it's important to succeed at university. It's a really interesting discussion, which I thoroughly enjoyed, and it's always good to have a chat with Sam. So I hope you enjoy it. Let's get geeking. LKM co-believe society should ensure all children and young people receive the support they need to make a fulfilling transition to adulthood. Find us at lkmco.org. Can we listen to it now? Alright, good afternoon. I'm sitting here with the lovely, talented... Dr. Sampas. Hey, <laughs> <laughs> I, I do actually mean that. <laughs> so, yeah, so Sam, we talk about your white working class, the underrepresentation of white working class boys in higher education. Yep, I think there was then a colon and the role of widening participation. It's one of those titles that has a colon and a little subtitle. Yeah, kind of like an action focus in the second half on what can widening participation folk do about it. But yeah. So we're going to talk about that today. Cool. Um, and so my first question is, it's about white working class boys in higher education. Mm. So tell me a little bit about your own educational experience. Oh, okay. Um, well, I went, to, I went to school right on the outskirts of London, um, I guess a relatively kind of monocultural kind of context, like you find in like outer suburbia. Um, my my progress with the education system has been that I would see as quite a privileged middle class kid whose parents both went to university, both my parents went to Oxford. So I've had, in terms of some of the themes that we touched on in our report, like access to family knowledge and capital about what university means and and, and entails, I had I had plenty of that. Um, a lot of my friends went off to university, um, so I went through the through the state system. But I would say I had my you know my family capital was quite high for things like going off to going off to university. Mm. Um, so I went to after school went to NFE college that was further into London, and I think that's what showed it was a really mixed. It was a fantastic FE college that was really mixed, and there were kids there doing vocational courses right through to kids doing kind of. Um, kind of A-levels that get you into Russell Group Unis all in one place and I think that was a real kind of eye-opener for the power of like a good FE as well for getting kids on to getting, getting kids on later on in education. That's interesting so you went to an FE college how come you didn't go to sixth form for example? My school didn't have one and I think after in all honesty you know I went to a, a good school um, but I think after five years there I really wanted to to have a bit of a change I'd kind of you know grown up in suburbia suburbia is not the most exciting place it's kind of safe there's lots to do but it's quite boring when you enter your teenage years whereas you know a kind of half an hour bus journey got me just about into London and it's just a lot more mixed a lot more interesting a lot more exciting more to do and they offered like tons and tons of courses so I didn't know until kind of started my career in research that you know most kids go on to sixth forms FE is a kind of smaller part of the pie 
in terms of kind of post-16 education. But for me, it was it was really great. So that um, was kind of your kind of eye-opening time. Yeah, I think so. And also, it's when I became kind of more. Um, you know, I studied politics at A-level, I started to get a lot more politically engaged and that, even, I think that's one of the interesting themes here in terms of access to higher education is the extent to which you need a kind of motivator, you need to see the point or the reason of it and although I came from the kind of background where I was probably likely to go anyway because my family did, most of my friends did, I saw the real relevance of, you know, studying something like politics um, and the social sciences further, you know, taking those things further to, to graduate level study. Mm. Um, so, and having access to those courses at FE is what kind of made me see what I would want to, to do at, at university. So, um, I know your PhD was in social change. Yeah. What led you to specialise in that? So we kind of jumped a bit from <coughs> basically A-levels to a few years to PhD. Mm. But tell me, you know, what did you specialise in, in that for your PhD? So social change is kind of a particular branch of sociology. Um, in a way, it's, it is just sociology because the society that we study is always constantly changing. You can't really study a static... It's not a static thing to study. But social change focuses in particular, as a field of sociology, on things like um, religious change, um, ethnic change in societies, um, and also... The stuff I found particularly interesting is, as well as those, those kind of demographic changes, um, are kind of changes in like political behaviour and attitudes, but also things like how how social change that's more kind of um, that comes about from individuals and groups, how how that can start. So kind of social movements, protest movements, and things like that. So that goes those twin ideas of society just changing organically, but also sometimes social change happens because people stand up and decide to bring about that change or convince other people that change needs to happen. Why is that interesting to you? I think it's interesting because it's... I think often when we're studying society, either we make the error of seeing it as something quite static and that things won't really change. Um, And also I think it's a reminder that even if you're doing things like what's often seen as kind of drier activities like research or academic study, there's... I kind of feel like we, we always... We all and always have that capacity to kind of bring about social change. If something isn't quite as, as we see it, it should be in society, we can kind of, we can actually bring, that, bring about change. So how does that link to what you currently do? So <clears throat> I, think, I think the process of change can sometimes take quite a while, and one of the really important aspects of that is having a really solid evidence, evidence base. And I also think that research can be quite useful in flagging unseen aspects of disadvantage perhaps um, or marginalised groups that aren't really on the radar because they're small or because it's politically expedient to ignore them for instance Um, and I think often research may not on its own bring about that change as we all know governments can choose to kind of ignore evidence or latest research if they if they want to but if it's there people can then use that to make make the case and say that this is an empirical aspect of society that's that's not right we need to bring about change Um, it then takes other people to get involved and turn that message into action and make it communicable to the wider public. But why not stay in academia? I mean, why come to right. a kind of think and action tank? Uh, you know, academia's got a clear system, I guess. It's kind of... Mm. I think, actually, interesting, a lot's changed just the last two or three years in academia, even just looking at how things are published and access, for instance, to research now um, is less expensive on the whole for members of the public. 
and universities I think are doing a better job at working with the communi communities they're based in to involve local people in research but also say look here's what we're doing why not come in public debates and things like this increasingly being held on university campuses but still it's quite I think the the sort of space that Alchem Co um, is situated in we we reach such a wide range of people and I think that's really that's really crucial um, it's nice to know when you're doing a piece of research that academics might read it but teachers and youth workers and social workers might also read it and just interested members of the public might also read it and I still think that's something that organisations in this sort of space manage to do better than than purely academic institutions mm. although some of them are phenomenal at it there's always going to be a range within there and I think that's I think a lot of academics still find that quite frustrating well that's interesting because you know the report that we're talking about mm. is a kind of a co-authored one I guess in terms of LKM Co, but also King's College London. Mm. So it's kind of uh, overlapping the space, I guess, in mm. some ways. Mm. Um, can you... It's about white, white working-class boys. Mm. One thing that struck me when I read the report is the difficulties in defining that term, which seems like a really obvious thing. So mm. can you explain to me a little about dif what the difficulties are in actually pinning down what that group is and who they are? Yeah. Yeah, sure. It's, it kind of surprised us, I think, when we set out, like, OK, let's... That's why that first section of the report and define, you know, define your object of study and then get on it's like, oh, this could actually turn out to be the most difficult bit of the report. And actually one of our key recommendations is that we need to try and agree on a, on a, a clearer definition of this group and how we can measure and, and identify them. But I think we, first of all, most of the action seems to be around what we mean by working class, what we mean by class. Um, and we didn't have the scope in the report to go into phenomenal... The, the kind of detail that you know, 40, 50, 60 years of sociology has gone into <laughs> on class. But you know, we soon realised that you know, I think a lot of schools and policymakers work with quite a narrow definition of class. For one, probably the best example is kind of using uh, free school meals as a proxy for class, and I don't think it really is. Free school meals is a really good proxy for educational disadvantage. We know there's a big gap between the attainment of kids on free school meals and their peers who aren't. I don't think that's the same as saying that's a, that's a class difference. Um, I think class, for me, class um, as a concept does one key thing and that's to kind of bring lots of different aspects of someone's situation into a single kind of um, single term, a single definition. In what way? So I think the, the best kind of definitions we have of class bring in things like um, we used to talk mainly in terms of parents' occupation. So depending on the jobs that your parents did, that's kind of your class background. Um, you know, if your parents did professional jobs, you were a middle-class kid. Um, if your parents did blue-collar jobs, you were a working-class kid. We've now kind of moved on from that. We also look at um, parents' level of education um, and the type of neighbourhood you live in, so the kind of streets that are around you and the kind of jobs and, and networks that you have locally as well. Where we're at now, um, there was a brilliant bit of research by some Manchester academics three or four years ago, which was actually based on a massive online survey with the BBC. Like the, I think it's called the Great British Class Survey. And there's lots of interesting stuff to come out of it. They were mainly looking for a modern, up-to-date definition of class and also the actual distribution of, of people by those class groups. But the, the main thing I think that brought to attention is the kind of questions they asked ranged from not just jobs and your level of education, but the kind of people that you know um, and the places that they've been in terms of their level of education. So also building in those ideas of like social capital, who you know, and cultural capital, the forms of knowledge and behaviour and patterns of 
patterns of life that you have access to and exposure to. Um, and then not just looking at income, but also looking at things like wealthy assets that you have. And I think that's what class does. It brings in um, lots of different things rather than just looking at income or rather than just looking at occupation or whether you live in a deprived area, for instance. Um, I think the other, the other issue with class that still exists, even when we have a nice rich definition on paper, is, is kind of um, ascription or self-identification. So, you know, you, you can say to someone, OK, I know what job your parents did, how much they earn, the kind of neighbourhood you live in, what level of education you have, but that might not necessarily mean if that, if that comes out as, oh, OK, so you, we, we would define you as being from a working-class background. doesn't mean that you feel you are, for instance. And that's really important because a lot of the stuff about going on to higher education and succeeding in higher education is, is, are about feelings of identity and how much you belong there. And even if you have access to resources and capitals, if you don't feel that you have, you still might not feel that you, you fit in or can do well in a certain sphere of life. And that's still hugely important. And that's a really difficult aspect of class because the access to data that universities have, for instance, might be increasingly rich in order to identify working class kids locally to target and work with. But it doesn't necessarily mean that's a, a term that pupils on their doorstep would use to describe themselves mm. and that stuff is really important um, I think researchers don't want to blunder around labeling people inaccurately if it, especially if it does damage to their identity so why is it important that um, higher education institutions are able to identi- correctly identify white working class boys or any group for example yeah. why is that important a lot of universities time especially good universities is, is spent targeting local pupils who are from kind of low access groups, groups that, are, that they know, that we all know are less likely to go on to higher education. How are you defining good? I would define a good university as one that, and I think this would probably capture most universities today, uh, a good university is one that sees itself not just as a centre for academic stuff to happen, like the generation of new knowledge, but they see themselves as having an important social and community role, like this idea of the civic university. It might sound a bit kind of woolly and washy, but actually it's that, you know, we're this, often in some, in some areas, this huge resource and institution in an area, for instance, that might not have much else locally. And that can go from everything from its sports facilities right through to the access to, you know, world-class knowledge in particular areas. Mm. And we know that, for instance, working with schools, bringing some of that stuff out into schools can have a huge impact on kids expectations for the future and how they do at school it's like anything if it's targeted well then it has its has maximal value there are plenty of kids who I describe my own journey I didn't really need to have access to any support from from universities to to show me higher education and explain what it would mean and and answer any questions because I could get access to that at home and so essentially you know we're talking about using public money I guess it's it's best targeted if it's focused at the young people that would really benefit from it. And that's why it's important, I think, to, to have a good definition and a good idea of who it is actually that we need to go and target. Okay, I yes. yes. Um, okay, so white working class boys are the lowest performing group at the end of secondary education. Mm. Um, does this, is this enough of an explanation to explain why they are underrepresented in higher education? Mm. So it's a, big, it's a big part of the explanation, but... Most research shows that even when you control for or take into account how kids do at school, 
there is still this um, kind of class gradient, I suppose, to access to higher education. Um, so we know that even the gap gets smaller when you account for how kids do at school, but taking two young people with the, with the same results, the one who's from a working class background is still less likely to get into higher education than the one from a more middle class background. And why is that? So we explored that question in our report. Um, we unpicked some of the evidence on, on attainment and the role of attainment. We, there's this kind of, this missing, there's, this, there's then this kind of black box of other stuff. Um, some of the main candidates in there are, we've already kind of discussed, like access to um, access to kind of information and guidance within the home kind of personal environment about you know, what university actually means, what to expect, how student debt works and how it's going to be paid off, for instance. All these things are really important. Um, there's also some really interesting qualitative research looking at just huge, a huge gulf in perceptions of higher education between kids from middle and working class backgrounds. Um, with, um, with kids from working class backgrounds far more likely to see university as, as just kind of hot, stuffy lecture theatres, a lot of hard work and a real lack of clarity about the payoff or the benefits <clears throat> or the fun that can be had, for instance. And these are the sorts of factors that, that can creep in and explain that, um, that, final, that final gap that remains, even once they've done well at school. So, so, yeah, I was going to say, like, who's, where should these... Um, I was going to say myths, but how can these perceptions be unpicked? Should they be done by uh, universities and higher education institutions, or should they be tackled at school? Mm. I guess the solution really is is both, but in quite a concrete way. So lots of universities are working directly, not just with secondary schools, but right down into primary schools. Um, I, my, from my point of view, one of the key bits of work, I think, and this will be really familiar to teachers, is that working with parents is really key. And often the thing that can be a real barrier um, is just parents' lack of knowledge about higher education. And we spoke to universities who said that, yes, it's, it's really key to sit parents down um, in workshops that are for, for, for pupils and for parents, so they're all getting the benefit of this knowledge, and explain, for instance, what the whole range of courses you can do, how you how you pay for your higher education and pay it back, but also really specific things like parents, and it tends to be the research suggests that parents from working class backgrounds are more likely to also worry about small things like, well, where will they live? How will they get food? Will they be safe and secure? The kind of things that parents worry about. Um, and with something that's not familiar, those, those worries and fears are, are heightened. So there's a lot of work to be, quite simple work to be done, just in reassuring parents about some of those more concrete aspects of higher education study. Um, so that's the way in which I think it's sort of the, the duty of, of higher education institutions but also schools to, to work with them um, and it's not just in a way it's not just an additional one more thing for, for schools to take on because we know that some of this stuff can also have an impact on attainment and sometimes give, give kids a clearer set of goals or what the, some of the things they might want to go and go and do in the future and that can have an impact on how they how they do at school and their motivation to do well at school. It's interesting because you mentioned primary schools I think often mm. people think about secondary schools when it comes to widening participation or you know that journey to university mm. um, you know how early do you think it should start? We've um, as part of some other research projects that we've been doing at LKMCO recently we've we've been to primary schools um, where we know that at the end of reception um, uh, pupils, are, pupils and parents when they make this transition from reception in, into uh, Key Stage 2 are kind of, this is, 
this is your this is the start of your journey to university. We found a number of primary schools that kind of that talk in this way. And receptionists um, like they're five, aren't they? Five, six years old. Yes. Four, five. Yeah. I think yeah, four, five. I guess. Um, and so that's that's starting that's starting really young. Um, and I think it's the idea there is just kind of planting this seed. It's not at all about saying the university is the one thing that school is about, and this is you starting this kind of single set of train tracks to higher education and that's really not what it's about um, but making sure that that's one of the ideas that's in the mix and I think for parents to see that really it's like wow okay maybe that is something they could do and changing perceptions and attitudes to or, <clears throat> or misconceptions about higher education can take quite a lot of time and so there's a case there for starting as early as possible so, so whole families can gradually adjust and think oh this really is something that you know our kids could go and do if they wanted to one thing that I know we've been guilty of, it's probably my fault as we've been questioning, is uh, I've been making higher education synonymous with universities. Mm. Um, and like there are other institutions. So in mm. terms of your findings and the report, did you notice that this was a problem across all types of higher education institution? Mm. So white working class boys? In all honesty, I think that's something that even we felt at the end of our report is something we would want to look at in in more detail. Universities do kind of dominate the higher education space and so that was one of the main reasons that we, we focused on them as well. But there are there are other other routes through higher education. Um, and we spoke to we spoke to some of those as part of the, the kind of the mini case studies we did for the report. Um, and some of those for instance higher education being offered or in close partnership with FE settings, for instance can be a really key way of granting access to higher education for groups that are less likely to go. How does that work? Well, I think sometimes higher education courses can be offered on FE campuses, for instance, and it's a way of demonstrating, like in, in the next room there might be students studying higher level courses next to um, your further education level course, and it means you can you can actually tangibly see, oh, that's, that's higher education happening right there, it's not in an ivory tower that's 50 miles away from my parents' house. I think that's one of the key ways in which those other forms of, of, of going through higher education can be really powerful because they're literally, they're literally tangible for It's funny for actually, as you're talking, the thing that, um, I'd forgotten all about it, but when I first, uh, so my degree is in engineering, mm. um, and there were a number of people <coughs> when I first started working who, it was mostly male, uh, quite young, they were all white as it happened, mm. and they worked for four days a week in that kind of engineering office but then uh, the company used to pay for them to go off and do it, it was at H&D at that time right. um, uh, so they could get their engineering degree as well mm. and that seemed to work fairly well yeah it's a high level apprenticeships I think are this was one of the what we, what we first thought was probably one of the smallest kind of subsections of the report is you know we need to make sure we're looking at higher education in the round not just going off to university and high level apprenticeships is a really key part of that provision um, we've seen found it's one of the most contentious areas of policy in this area the people saying that it's and I, I think I see a lot of the validity of this, of this argument that it's, it's not just about university higher education if, if by higher education we just mean developing your skills and knowledge to a higher level it shouldn't have to be done in a university setting necessarily if anything it just mirrors that um, continuing divide in our brains between vocational and academic study, which I think is really unhelpful, and which we've still yet to properly, properly bridge at school. Um, 
but also some people saying that you know you look at I suppose the case the, the flip side of the argument being that for some young people putting them through higher education in a non-university setting is almost seen as an easier second-rate alternative now those are kind of aren't my not necessarily how I see it but a lot of people do and things like the Wolf report into um, vocational academic study a few years ago were quite clear that we might talk about oh you know this this route has just the same status but if it actually doesn't, no, it doesn't then it's unfair to, to sell it in that way mm-hmm. I think even since we wrote the report there's been a lot of change things like the apprenticeships levy is changing the breadth and range and number of apprenticeships on offer but we still know that the majority of apprenticeships are done at kind of um, further education level and there's quite low rates of transition from FE level apprenticeships into higher level apprenticeships and I, I still think it's, it's not really seen as um, having kind of parity of esteem and I think it probably should do, that's an area that we need to change. So I think that's actually yeah, a really crucial question. Are we talking about university here or do we, do we, should we constantly remind ourselves to shift our focus broader and take in kind of things like high-level apprenticeships as well? So it sounds like at the moment you're saying that for the purposes of this, because universities dominate the landscape, mm. you kind of were talking about university, but actually there yeah. are other things to be considered. There definitely are. And I, coming back to where we started in social change, I still feel that, say, if you look at the constitution of the UK Parliament, as an example the majority of people on the front bench and the shallow front bench are people who've gone to university now not all of them it's really important to to clarify but the vast majority of them did and they're just one subset of the people in power as a collective term for people that kind of you know in the institutions that have a lot of say over how our society looks and if the truth for the time being even if it's an imperfect truth is that going to university is one of the key ways of getting into those positions then we kind of need to be honest about that I think even if in the long run we want to change that. Um, and that's a really difficult question for social justice more broadly, I think. Yeah, and also, you know, we're talking about perceptions. I think it's important to... Young people aren't stupid. Mm. So if we say one thing but they can quite clearly see the other, that's not going to help yeah. in terms of wanting them to engage with what we're trying to say. Yeah, right. It just rings hollow and doesn't do any... It does a lot of damage, I think, as well. Mm. Yeah. Okay, so there was a really interesting thing. The report was interesting overall, but there was a surprising uh, kind of statement that jumped out at me, which is that 10% of the most disadvantaged white British males progress to higher education. Mm. But this is uh, significantly less than advantaged white males, which you kind of expect, but also that it was significantly less than uh, disadvantaged males from other ethnic backgrounds, which is mm. something that's quite surprising if you're not into this in this field. Yeah, it is quite surprising, and I think it sometimes causes a bit of... Um, it's often the cause of a bit of confusion in widening education, um, even when you go to kind of debates and conferences about it. Essentially, um, access for other ethnic groups, even from lower class... So there's this class gradient across the board, so kids from all ethnic backgrounds seem to face greater hurdles accessing higher education than their middle class peers but actually participation rates um, amongst kind of um, BME kids are higher they're better than they are for white kids Um, when you look at how experiences of higher education um, other ethnic groups really don't seem to have as they don't do as well Um, they have kind of lower retention rates and they come away on the whole with on average lower um, lower marks at the end of their degrees and that's so there is still there are other sets of issues it looks like for other ethnic groups in terms of pure access 
actually white white British kids seem to focus a particular seem to face particular hurdles. So it's interesting you're saying that um, white British kids can't find it hard to get there, right? But then one, uh, once kids from other um, ethnic minorities get there, mm. they have a harder problem staying there, and then also kind of making the most of the university experience. Yeah. Is that kind of a reasonable paraphrase? Yeah, definitely. And I think one of the real one of the real problems is that um, it's also looking at the the constitution of the academic population, and it's dominated still on the whole by white and largely males. And it means that if you're a student studying a course and you've got a pastoral issue that needs taken care of, you've got a particular worry about the content of your course, for instance, and whether it's applicable to you, you're far less likely if you're not from a white, um, if you're not white, to to be able to find someone who might be able to address a particular a, a particular concern that you've had or provide you with a particular support that you need. Or just to see a kind of a role model or someone um, who's 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 in this institution and, and has gone there and done that. I'm just trying um, to think if I had any female lecturers. No, I don't think I had any female lecturers. Mm. Um, we had some non-white lecturers because it's engineering, so um, that's not massively uncommon, but still mm. not loads. Mm. Right. When you're talking about access to higher education and, as you're saying, crucially, whether you do well and, and come away with a degree, because even if you get through the gates, doesn't necessarily mean you're going to come away with a degree. I mean, that's a particular problem for people from non-white backgrounds. Then you're less likely to end up in those kind of as a professor at the end of your career, and that's that's really important for the for the young people who are coming through the system from below and looking at looking around them and thinking, oh, okay, I might be here, but it looks like this isn't somewhere where I'm going to succeed or do well or or stay. Mm. But there is that interesting paradox. I think people, in terms of access, I think there's argue there's arguably a case for focusing on kids from from white backgrounds. Um, but that's a very small part of the of the problem. Interesting. So related to that, um, maybe a few podcast episodes ago, you were talking to uh, George about a report that the Running Me Trust had done. Mm. That kind of was a rebuttal was a bit strong, but you know, explored some other issues yeah. um, in counterpart to the white working class one. So I was mm. wondering if you could talk a little bit about that now in terms of you know. Their point was that it's not massively useful to separate white working class boys from other ethnic groups because there are a whole load of issues of disadvantage at play. That's basically mm. what they were saying, I think. Yeah. Yeah, and I think it was a really important um, set of essays that they published because it basically, it reminds, it was a really important reminder for me that when you're talking about people's... I guess people's kind of multiple identities and backgrounds. So if you take a white working class boy, you've got a boy, um, you've got a kid from a working class background and you've got someone who is white. And what's doing the work there? If you're saying that those three things taken together seem to be a, a barrier to accessing higher education or doing well at school, what's really doing the work? And there's a whole set of studies saying that boys tend to underachieve relative to girls at school. Um, there's not much saying that... Well, the White white kids from particular social class backgrounds don't do so well, but other white kids do just fine. Um, and so it's a question really of what's what's doing the most work. My my takeaway from the existing evidence is that class is probably the thing that's doing most of the work, and that's kind of what the Running Me Trusts were arguing. One of the central arguments in their set of essays, saying that actually 
and and this is where it's, it can become less useful to break down that group by ethnic background, for instance, because to some extent they share this common substrate, which is their class background. Um, and to the extent that being from a working class background might mean you are materially poor or live in an area that doesn't have particularly high high quality public institutions, access to public services, public transport, for instance, then that's a shared, that's a common shared barrier and it becomes unhelpful to continue breaking apart these groups, especially if when they work together, they might achieve more or make a strong case for this needs to be changed, policy isn't representing us, our, our local area needs investment, then saying oh, it's a particular issue for white working class boys becomes unhelpful and I really see the validity of that. Even if the evidence shows, if you look at the, the pure kind of attainment data, for instance, at the end of secondary, that it seems to be um, you know, white working class boys, or white, white, white British boys have a particularly steep social class gradient so that when you get down to kids from working class backgrounds, they are dropping considerably below other, other groups. Yeah, the interesting thing that keeps kind of popping up in my mind is kind of related to what you said before, which is we're sp- talking specifically about access mm. um, and that's kind of the evidence there is not really it, it's clear um, but then it's interesting uh, about what happens once people are at uh, higher education institutions mm. and also when they leave like I'm thinking about yeah. the social mobility report um, which I guess it's a little bit beyond the scope but it's kind of an interesting question for me it was like okay so white working class don't tend to go boys don't go to university mm. as, as much as the rest of the population but how do they do later? Mm. You know, um, do they have reasonable access to jobs considering they didn't go to university? You know, all that wider social stuff, that's, that's huge. Mm. So, but it's a really important reminder that the work doesn't just stop. I think um, the same argument is really useful looking at closing the gap. So everyone's talking about closing the gap at the end of, at the end of compulsory education by the, time, by the time kids get to 16. And that's really important. But we know from the report that we did for the Social Mobility Commission that there are still huge differences that open up later in access to higher education, but also earnings in the workplace, the proportion of kids who then go on to highly skilled. There are, um, there are still far too many kids um, from particular backgrounds who do really well at school and then don't really see any payoff for that in their later outcomes as an individual. Mm, what kind of backgrounds is that? Um, we know that... Um, uh, Muslim kids, for instance, seem to face... That's one of the things we identified in, in our report for Social Mobility Commission. Um, they seem to face particular penalties in, um, in later life, even if they've done really well at school, just as, as one example. Um, and I think that's a reminder that we don't... When we've, we, we might close gaps at school, but the work doesn't kind of stop there. Yeah, it's interesting. You know what you're saying about the work? So you're saying that the evidence in school or education settings, is that class is the thing that has the most impact. Mm. Most negative impact, I don't know, but most impact. Mm. But interesting, like maybe in life, it then becomes race or identity. Mm. So, and there are different things at different stages, quite possibly. Yeah. Yeah, it could be. And that's not something I've thought about in a great amount of detail, but I, that, I think that's a really, a really solid thought and is almost certainly, almost certainly the case. Um, and it's a, it's a really good case for not just sticking. Once you found a, you might we might target our efforts at a particular group of young people in terms of, for instance, accessing higher education. But it might be a very different group of kids 
that we need to target to make sure they have a good experience in education. And a different group, again, in terms of translating their degree into something in the workplace. It might not be the same set of kids who are disadvantaged all the way through. Mm. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's really, it's interesting, it's huge, but it's, it's it interesting. It is huge, yeah. Mm. What new information do you feel this report can bring to the widened participation debate? Firstly, I think one of the key, the key points about definitions, and I think it's a really um, a good point for the whole education sphere to take on, like labelling labeling kids one way and, and broadening that definition almost to breaking point. So actually, for instance, with free school meals, we've got a really useful way, it seems, of identifying kids who are less likely to do well at school. But that doesn't necessarily mean they're from a particular background, actually within that bucket there are kids from all kinds of backgrounds. Um, I think also it's, what I hope is that it's kind of reinvigorated a discussion about class. Um, I, don't, I think class has become one of those terms that we don't like to use. Um, it's seen as, you know, labelling people in a very fixed way. It's seen as, I think, it's seen as pejorative sometimes, saying that someone's from a working class background. Um, I don't think it has to be that way. Hopefully it's, it's another report that is openly and honestly using this terminology and making clear that it's actually it's a useful way of describing the social world and it's, it doesn't have to just be a, a pejorative term or a term that we have to shy away from. Um, I think also we, we showed that, that in higher education, particularly for instance in the, the recent election we had, if you look at higher education policies of the party, there's a lot of focus on fees in terms of access. Um, and that's a really crucial part of the problem and also kids doing well enough at school so that they get the grades to get into a good university, also another key part of the problem. But what we hope to expose in our report is that there are a whole other set of issues, um, mainly surrounding the sorts of knowledge that families have about higher education. Um, and that involves a far more interesting focus on the whole family, I think, as a site of social mobility. If, you know, if that's what this is all about, socially mobile individuals then just focusing on the individual is never really going to get us there. If their parents, for instance, and their friends have absolutely no idea about this thing or what it means or what it might look like. That potentially opens up a completely different approach to widening participation. As you're talking to me, kind of it's, as you say, it's often targeted at the individual child or mm. young person. But then to start to think about, OK, how do we educate our community that we serve, for example, mm. if you're a school um, or if you're a university doing outreach to families, that's like a completely different approach. Mm. Quite powerful, actually. Yeah, I think so. And also it means that more people can potentially benefit. The, by, by bringing parents into the loop, you also open up a whole really, really important set of questions about higher education broadly but university I think in particular being something you do between the ages of 19 and 22 you know you look at the, the graph of um, the people who are studying in higher education there's a, there's a huge spike around that age and then things tail off really rapidly it's I think in this country it's still not seen as something that you can do at the point in life when it suits you best and we know that a particular barrier to participation of white working class boys but I think from working class young people more broadly is this idea that it's something you, you need to make a decision about and do in your late teens and early 20s. Actually, sometimes given a few more years, the relevance of raising your skills and knowledge to a higher level might become a hell of a lot more relevant. You think, wow, I can totally see what higher education might be for me, for me now, but I didn't at the age of 19. Um, 
And I think this idea of lifelong learning and parents accessing those opportunities too is a really fascinating little spin-off when you start to think about bringing parents into the loop in order to raise the chances of their kids going to higher education. Mm. Um, yeah, cause it's making me think about, say, institutions like Birkbeck in London and also the Open University is like a kind of well-known, ongoing, lifelong education mm. and quite a successful model in many yeah. respects. Yeah. So, yeah, thank you, Sam. It's been fascinating. I could talk to you for kind of all day about this. It's really, really interesting. <laughs> <laughs> so thanks very much. And I'm going to end now. Thank you. That was so interesting. Hey, people. I love making this podcast. If you enjoy listening to it as much as we enjoy making it, there's a few things that you can do. One, subscribe. Press the subscribe button on iTunes or wherever you listen to it. Two, share. Share this episode with somebody who you know will find it interesting or is affected by the specific issues covered. Free. Review. Write a review or leave a comment. Also feel free to contact us via the links on the show notes. Thanks a lot. Bye.